take a deep breath and remember there's a power breathing you. This is your space of sanity in an evolving world where we learn about spiritual law and how to apply it to our lives in a way that is practical and life-changing. This is where we remember truth to make the world a better place, one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, inspirational speaker, teacher of the technology of transformation, and a certified life mastery consultant and spiritual growth mentor. Welcome to the Grace Space. Hey everyone. So I'm doing a major detox right now and um my nose, my sinuses, everything is pretty blocked up. So <laughs> I hope you can put up with my adenoidal tones today. Um yeah, detoxing, major detox. I'll tell you about that later. It's going to take some time, but uh, it's a really interesting process. And uh, I'm actually overjoyed for this healing crisis or healing opportunity, as I would prefer to call it. Nearly 25 years ago, I was given a dream wedding by my wonderful mother. She had saved for that wedding my whole life and no expense was spared. Growing up, and especially as I got to the marriageable age, I shared her excitement about my eventual wedding to whomsoever and all the traditions that would be observed. The pictures of my parents' traditional Southern wedding in Mississippi in 1969 were (laughs) well-thumbed by me as a young girl with the three-tiered white wedding cake, the army of bridesmaids standing in order of descending height with their bouffants and pink dresses, my exquisitely beautiful mother in her long veil of Spanish lace and her bouquet of calla lilies, and my movie star handsome father in his tuxedo, my glamorous society grandmother meeting his parents flown over from Algeria, All these archetypal images were burned in my mind, and my own conceptual future wedding was to be the fulfillment of familial and cultural expectations, a badge of belonging, and a rite of passage into idealized womanhood. When I did eventually marry, two weeks shy of my 30th birthday, my mother pulled out all the stops. She had often said to me, My wedding belonged to my mother, your wedding will belong to me. I knew how important it was to her, and I wanted her to have the wedding she always wanted. Our tastes were so similar anyway, there would be no conflict on that front. I wanted to be the carbon copy of the princess I had seen in her wedding photos. I never really thought about what was beyond the wedding. My first husband was a director, and he had his own very definite ideas about the wedding. He bristled at the idea that my mother was in charge, at the presumption that he should have no real voice in the proceedings. And to be fair, in all the years of thinking and planning about my future fantasy wedding, the groom played an insignificant role in a way he didn't exist. (laughs) It was like one half of the faceless statuettes on top of the wedding cake. When I was little, I loved to draw. Particularly, I loved to draw women. I drew them over and over, usually in beautiful long dresses. 
I asked my dad to draw in the men next to them, which he did obligingly and comically, like one is a caveman wearing a pelt, holding a club. (laughs) One is a fireman with his fireman's hat. One is a clown. One is a king. I knew they needed a man next to them, but I couldn't draw the man. I wasn't interested in drawing the man. I remember looking at my drawings, about three princesses per page with blanks next to them, which my father would fill in with a variety of characters. Somehow this seems significant. Once my fiancé and I had announced our engagement and the planning began, I was caught in an emotional tug of war about whom to please, my mother or my future husband. He was outraged that my loyalties should be divided. For instance, he wanted to look at venues close to New York, which is where we lived, and not assume that, of course, we would be married in my hometown in Florida, according to tradition. Then again, my mother was paying for the wedding, so he felt kind of powerless. My mother was devastated that we should consider not being married at home, in the home church, and, you know, with all the traditions. Her tears were like a knife in my heart. I couldn't go against her. After all, we had planned this together for years, and it was her wedding, not mine. Now that there was another person involved, it was suddenly more complicated. When my fiancé asked me where I wanted to be married, I would just weakly repeat to him what my mother wanted, which enraged him. No, Claire, I don't want to know what your mother wants. What do you want? I will not listen to anyone but you. I remember him saying this to me in the car. He was so, so vehement. I will not listen to anyone but you. Do you want to get married at home? Or is that your mother speaking? What do you want? I mean, he had a point. He was asking me to step up and listen to myself for once but I was helpless to know what I wanted. What I wanted didn't matter. I just didn't want to displease either party. (laughs) That was what I wanted, harmony. (laughs) I resented the pressure my future husband was putting me under and just wanted the whole issue to go away. As a compromise, we ended up getting married an hour away from my hometown at a simple country church on the bay that neither of us had any association with. It was my future husband's way of acquiescing to tradition while still holding on to some power and my way of pleasing both him and my mother. In the end, all the conflicts were forgotten. We had a beautiful wedding, the wedding of the century, as one of my mother's friends breathlessly called it. But this people-pleasing paralysis should have been a sign to me that I was nowhere near to being in a conscious relationship with myself, let alone with anyone else. Dark clouds loomed on the horizon. Once married... All the buildup of my lifelong desire to be married in a beautiful wedding, wearing a beautiful dress with some conceptual man next to me, was spent. The blank next to the princess was filled in. All the looking forward to the imagined event burst like a soap bubble. It was pure projection. And the excitement of being in the starring role of fulfilling the feminine archetype, making my mother happy, and stepping across the threshold into a new life gave way to reality. I did not know who I was. I was living in a house of wavy mirrors. Within four years, it was all over, and the shameful debacle left me and my devastated husband stunned, bewildered, and wounded by the failure. 
I ran as fast as I could into a new relationship with the man who became my second husband, none the wiser for the smoking ruins I had left behind me. What the hell happened there? I sure didn't know. Just that it was supposed to be happily ever after, and it wasn't. I had no idea what love was, what unconscious forces were driving me, what drove me into marriage and then out of it again. I had no idea that they were in fact the same forces in both cases. But the ability to be curious about what drives us to ask the deeper questions about our true motivations in relationship are not exactly facilitated by a cultural milieu that itself promulgates an idealized, romanticized view of intimate relationships and their purpose. As we shift into a new age of consciousness, our relationship paradigm must also shift away from idealized but unconscious relationships that are all about projection towards conscious, ethical relationships that are focused on letting go of our blockages. Today, we'll talk about that term, ethical relationship, what it means, and how it serves us on the path of conscious living. To the degree that we are chock full of samskaras, those crystallized holograms of past experiences that are stuck inside us and blocking the flow, to the degree that we are ruled and fueled by those unresolved energies, we will be unable to see another human being clearly. We think we're interacting with another person, but we're actually interacting with ourselves projected onto the other person. From instant to instant, we're scanning on the subconscious level all the subtle cues for how well this interaction is fitting in with our preferences or not fitting in, as the case may be, if it works for us, if it's not working for us. And as we've already explored, this is all based on our samskaras. If the person is triggering discomfort somewhere inside us, we feel an aversion. We don't like them. We don't want to see them. And we make up the reasons to ourselves why it's okay to judge them, for example, don't we? Like, she's selfish, or she's so uptight and rigid, I can't stand being around her. We usually don't admit to ourselves, I feel jealous and competitive around that person and acknowledge that whatever I'm putting on them is coming from me. Conversely, when we fall in love, it's because for whatever reason, that person, at least initially, opens us up and our energy flows temporarily despite our blockages. The heart opens and we associate that feeling of flow with the other person. If we don't understand that the energy is, was, and always will be ours, and that we alone determine how it flows, we're going to feel dependent on the other person's presence to repeat the feeling, which of course, they'll be unable to provide indefinitely, and eventually we'll feel disillusioned, and so will they. And disappointment, right? And then things begin to fall apart, or you end up repeating the same alternating cycles of battle and truce, battle and truce over and over for years, and the lying and the hiding and the cheating, In an unconscious relationship, real love is muted. And at worst, you're in a toxic, harmful situation, or at best, you're unfulfilled. Something's missing. You don't know what it is. You're just, you're looking for distraction. You're looking for ways to fill the void. And you think that that's just the way it is. 
So here's why we should all give ourselves a break when it comes to the mess we make in relationships. And once again, it all comes down to these samskaras, the unresolved past in us. When we're born, we are completely dependent. Unlike most other animals who have a comparatively short period of dependency on the mother, if they even have a mother, some of them are just spawned and off they go. They're up and on their own in no time. Not us. We are totally dependent on the people we're born to for nourishment and on the physical level and and for love and attention. You can't keep a baby alive with physical nourishment alone. We have to be touched and cared for. They discovered this during the Blitz in World War II when many babies in Britain were sent away from the cities that were being bombed to centers out in the country where all their physical needs were provided for, but where they weren't receiving love and care. Many of the babies began to sicken and even die. They identified this phenomenon as failure to thrive. It seems barbaric that nobody realized that, of course, babies need to be coddled and held and loved, but I guess they didn't understand that. With all these babies failing to thrive, someone had the idea to call in some nannies, and the nannies began to immediately pick up the children, hold them, talk to them, rock them, kiss them, and so on. Problem solved. We need love. We need to know someone cares about us. We need to be touched and cared for. Otherwise, we die. Think about how that compels us to ensure that we receive that caring by any strategy that we can devise. So we're born totally dependent for our survival on those that we are born to. And from our first breath, we're seeking to get those needs met. With our first breath, literally, we scream. We are born to parents who are also seeking to get their needs met, often by their children. I mean, do you think all parents are having children from a well-balanced place? Of course not. For instance, how many people have babies because they don't want to be alone? I heard that recently. A celebrity said, I knew if I had a baby, I would never be alone. Oh my God. <laughs> you imagine that kid from the moment you're born, you exist to fulfill an emotional need of your parent. It isn't necessarily conscious, but many people start families trying to heal themselves from their own messed up families and putting all kinds of pressure on their children to compensate for what they didn't receive as children. I know a young man who has plenty of talent and intelligence who has not yet been able to to launch to leave home, right? Unconsciously, he won't leave home because he can't separate from his mother, Why? She was the lonely, only child of a depressive mother. She didn't get what she needed and has been trying to get her emotional needs met through her own family and children ever since. She taught her son to stay close to home because inside she's still a lonely little girl. And by the way, she still lives next door to her parents. Meanwhile, her son at 22 has dropped out of four university programs and is turning into a black hole of despair because he can't actualize himself as a man. So we pass along these unconscious, unresolved patterns, some scars, right, to our children if we're unable to deal with them ourselves. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. These interpersonal dynamics begin in the home we grew up in, From the word go, we're developing strategies to get our needs met. 
We are master manipulators, all of us. That's not a judgment. It's a fact. Remember, we're dealing with the seat of the ego in the reptilian brain and the cortex. The ego's mandate is me first. It's a program that's all about survival. And when it's no longer about physical survival, it's emotional survival, preservation of the carefully constructed psyche. With this sophisticated cortex on top of the old animal brain, we can make it look more refined when we're out there to get what we need, but the basic program hasn't changed. There's an old family picture of me and my brother on the brick front steps of our first house in Virginia. He's about a year old, and I'm about two and a half. And you can clearly see a set of bite marks on his cheek, for which I was responsible. I kind of remember that moment of biting, and this swirl of atavistic emotions that prompted it. It was pure jealousy, and a desire to hurt, because I was hurt, insecure, and afraid. The way I expressed those feelings was not met with approval, obviously. I still feel the sting of being scolded and the guilt of hearing him scream when I bit him. That strategy didn't work (laughs) to get my needs met. In fact, it had the opposite effect. So what do you do? You develop another. Be nice, even if you don't want to be. Stuff your feelings down and be good. Inhibit the impulses of the animal. That strategy worked much better. And yes, of course, we also discover, unless we're psychopathic or sociopathic, that goodness is its own reward, that having to suppress the baser instincts is part of being in society, it's part of evolving. And we discover our own natural goodness and kindness as qualities that well up from within, uncaused. Nevertheless, in growing up, We've built a psyche, which is a collection of learned behaviors or strategies about how to get our needs met and control the elements and people outside so that we can feel okay inside. Even though this way of operating is backwards and the absolute opposite of what would free us, it's what we learn to do. Then we take all that mess and try to have an intimate relationship with another person and all their mess recipe for disaster, of course. But it's just the disaster we need. In a way, we're we're set up to fail because we have to. I heard Eckhart Tolle say once that we always marry the wrong person. <laughs> In other words, we always marry the person who's going to bring up our wounds and we're going to bring up theirs. This is incredibly valuable, of course, but it requires both people to be intensely conscious and present to be able to unearth what's buried and transform it. Otherwise, we're going to think that it's a mistake, that we've made a mistake. And as we know already, most people on the planet are not intensely conscious and present. Instead, we've got Two people, maybe two really lovely, sincere, well-intentioned people. But if they haven't understood the basics of universal spiritual law as they apply to personal relationships, if they're not actively doing the work to free themselves and know that they're doing it, the relationship is almost certainly destined to become a source of dissatisfaction and pain. In fact, the relationship is potentially 
a crucible for the transformation of deeply embedded unresolved patterns. We always attract a person who's going to bring up those patterns. For example, my first husband had a terrible fear of divorce. His parents had been through an ugly divorce and it was very hard on him. Consequently, the idea of divorce was utterly unacceptable to him. It called up all the pain of his childhood that he had managed to suppress. He was very tightly wound. I remember walking down the street with him once in New York. He was holding my hand in a vice grip. I could feel him mentally ruminating on something as we walked, lost in his mind, and I realized that he wasn't aware of how tightly he was holding on to me. When I finally said, hey, you're squeezing the blood out of my hand here, (laughs) he woke up and, and loosened his grip. I remember that little moment, I guess, because it was indicative of the control that he was trying so hard to maintain over his inner state of fear and anxiety, which was, of course, the mirror to my own. He didn't have a very high opinion of actresses, I remember. And of course, I was an actress. But when we got engaged, as if justifying his choice of partner, he told me that he, when he spoke of me to a big producer friend of his, he said, Claire's an actress, but she's not like the rest of them. She's not flighty and insecure. (laughs) Little did he know. In marrying me, and building in his mind an ideal of the right woman for him, which was a projection, he thought he was ensuring his safety from repeating his parents' mistakes. Whatever he had projected onto me, and which I'm sure I did my best to appear as, was what he thought would protect him from his pain. But life doesn't protect us from pain. It puts us face to face with it sooner or later. The dreaded D word that he had tried so hard to avoid became a shameful reality. Even though, like Oedipus, he ran as far away as he could to avoid fulfilling the prophecy of killing his father and marrying his mother, he did exactly that. The play Oedipus Rex is about how this man deals with the horror of facing his greatest fear— the thing he's tried to avoid his whole life. And he ends up poking his own eyes out with Jocasta, his mother-wife's brooches, so I guess he still didn't want to see it. I was that jagged, sharp, and dangerous instrument to my first husband. When we're unconscious, we are dangerous. We can't be counted on to know our own heart. Oh, follow your heart. Your heart will never lead you astray. Yes, it will. If it's the human heart, full of pain and blockages, if you haven't done the work to clear yourself, if you haven't been through the fire, yes, it will lead you astray. The spiritual heart is another matter. But when we're still asleep, we're driven by unconscious forces. We may say, I do, until we're parted by death, and we may believe that we mean it until things change because we are in constancy itself. We always end up attracting the people and situations that unearth what we've tried to bury. The question is, what do we do when that stuff comes up? Poke our eyes out? 
run away, look for something different, make it the other person's problem, or feel for the place within us that is so disturbed and face the thing we fear. More on that next week. Meanwhile, walk in grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space, where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review 